Turn, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 5. Two full chapters this morning and a verse, just for good measure, through chapter 7, verse 1. We're going through the book of 1 Samuel. We come to the section where Samuel's being raised up as a prophet, and then for a brief time, Samuel is not heard from. We don't know about Samuel. We just learned that the Israelites have lost the ark of God. They were treating it as a superstitious relic, if you will. They were defeated. The Philistines captured the ark, and now we'll see what God does in the presence of the Philistines. I've entitled this message, Dangerous God. 1 Samuel 5 through chapter 7, verse 1. I'll go through as I have been because these are such large sections. I'll go through and read it as we go. Uh, back in the Reformation, the, the period of time that, that a lot of us look back on with, not because we were there, well, most of us weren't there, but, but we look back on it with fondness. The gospel was, in a sense, rescued. It had always been around. God was always, has always been building His church since Acts 2. But the gospel was rescued from false doctrine and false teaching. One of the things that happened during the Reformation was that as the people got the Word of God, as people now had the Word of God in their own language, and as it was being preached and taught throughout Europe, one of the things that happened was people started to know God better. No longer could a church kind of hide certain parts about God's Word. Now His Word was unleashed, it was on full display, and people got to see that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. You don't earn your way to God's favor. Jesus Christ was now presented before people as their Savior. It's faith alone in Christ alone that saves. Another thing that happened during the Reformation was that not just people saw Jesus as Savior, they saw God in all of His glory. They got to see all of His attributes. And in a way, this is kind of the opposite of that. This time that we live in is the opposite of the Reformation in this sense. In the Reformation, a lot of people knew that they were under the judgment of God, but they didn't fully have Christ preached to them as the free gift that's offered to them. So they missed out on part of God's character, a part of God's character that would save them. Today, we know a lot about the grace of Jesus because that's what we often talk about. That's what the evangelical church focuses on, or the American church, the worldwide church. But no longer do we, generally speaking, obviously, no longer do we talk about the wrath of God, or the danger that God is, or the trouble that men and women are in front of or, or in response to a holy God. Well, this passage does that. It shows us that God is a danger to some people. God is a danger to some people. Richard Lovelace, who's written a thick book on different renewal movements in the church, different periods of revival throughout church history, wrote this about the Second Great Awakening. This was now a couple hundred years ago. There was a First Great Awakening where a lot of people came to faith in Jesus Christ, and then there was a Second Great Awakening because what do we do when God moves? We try to replicate it ourselves. So the Second Great Awakening, not as blessed by the Lord, but there was some fruit there was some fruit that came out of that. But the Second Great Awakening really kind of changed the focus a little bit. The First Great Awakening, this preaching of God's wrath and His salvation. The Second Great Awakening, let's kind of put God's wrath behind the curtain for a little bit. That's not as attractive to people. Lovelace wrote this, the Second Great Awakening stressed the goodness of man and the goodness of God, where we know the Scriptures teach that mankind is born in sin. The Second Great Awakening, Lovelace says, toned down the message of hell and the wrath of God to the point of inaudibility. You no longer heard it. 
the church substituted a new God who was the projection of a grandmotherly kindness mixed with the gentleness and winsomeness of a Jesus who hardly needed to die for sins. Many American congregations were in effect paying their ministers to protect them from the real God. Finally, Lovelace says this, God's mercy, patience, and love must be fully preached in the church. Amen. But they are not credible unless they are presented in tension with God's infinite power, complete and sovereign control of the universe, holiness, and righteousness. The whole counsel of God needs to be proclaimed if you're going to know God accurately. And we come to a passage today where God is said to be dangerous. God kills people in this passage. Rightly so. And I think that shines a spotlight all the more on the mercy that He provides. It glorifies Him all the more to show how merciful He is in Christ Jesus. I'll say it this way, one doesn't deeply know the love of God unless they have felt that they rightly deserve the wrath of God. And that shockingly, they won't receive it because of the generosity shown in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for them. So in this passage today, we see that God is a dangerous God. He's more than that, but He is a dangerous God, and that's displayed in this passage. There are two groups that find or should find God as dangerous that we see are, are, are part of this passage where God is, is angry at them, disciplining them, judging them, two groups. And so that'll be our outline for this morning, two groups who must deal with the dangerous God. And I'll give you the, the two groups ahead of time because you want to know. I'd want to know <laughs> as soon as I gave that proposition. Two groups who must deal with the dangerous God. First, obvious rejectors of Him, the Philistines. Secondly, hidden rejectors or, or hypocritical responders. These are the people of God who say they're His people, but they don't follow His Word. They don't respond to what He says. Now, the larger part of this room right here is not one of those two groups. The larger part of this room are people who are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, at the end of this, I'll address you, followers of God, who, yes, sin, but also repent of sin and trust in Jesus for mercy. Okay, so realize that you are not one of those two groups, although some in here may be. So first, let's look at this first group who are in danger from a holy God. It's that God is a danger to the obvious enemies to His rule, the obvious enemies to His rule. This is found in chapter 5 through 6, verse 12. The Philistines are that group. They are the enemies of Israel, the, the, the people who are opposed to the God of Israel, they are the obvious enemies, the obvious rejectors, and they defeated Israel. Now they possess the ark, the, the dwelling place of God, if you will, that he, was, that he set up in the tabernacle to be a representation of his presence with Israel. Well, no longer does Israel have the dwelling place of God, the ark. Now the Philistines, the enemies of Israel do. And in the first paragraph, you see that Dagon, their God, that Dagon God, I'll say that a couple hundred times this morning, okay? Um, Dagon evidently has defeated the God of Israel. Notice verse 1 of chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. It goes from 
the city where the Israelites controlled, now to Ashdod, a city that had a temple of Dagon, this god. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. You see the repeated name of this Philistine god? The author of Hebrews is trying to get you to see that this god is pitted against the god of Israel. So, in, in this day and age, in 1100 B.C., uh, what was true of that culture was when you know that different people groups had different localized gods. The thing that's different about Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is that He claims that He's the God over all gods. That's new to, to other people groups in this area. So, the Philistines have a number of gods. One of them is Dagon, this, this God of fertility and growth and blessing and harvest. So they have this God, and when the Philistines defeat Israel, and when any group would defeat any other group, or any military would defeat any other military, it was seen as a victory of one God over another. So right now, the Philistines believe that their God, Dagon, is, is more powerful than the God of Israel. So they bring this ark to Dagon's temple. And when the people, verse 3, and when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. The idol falls down and is apparently bowing down to the God of Israel. And, and you can laugh. I mean, it's meant to be humorous. Oftentimes in the Bible, when idols are spoken of, specifically in the Old Testament, there is comedy to it. God, the Holy Spirit, as the author of Scripture, shows how foolish it is, and it's meant to get a laugh, that the idea that a man carves out something out of wood, he, the man makes it and then worships it. That's rather humorous. So this God, this false God of the Philistines, falls down before God, and he's bowing down before the ark of God. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. What a powerful God. He needs to be helped up by the people. Verse 4, but the, when they rose early the next morning, second day in a row, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Now, in battle during that time, oftentimes people would dismember the people that they defeated. It was just a cruel sign of victory. Your hands are not powerful anymore. We own you. Well, God does that to Dagon, ritually dismembers him, showing that God is the one who has victory over any other god. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day, as if that somehow would help. But they have this ritual uh, that they would then follow in the coming days beyond this because his hands and head were on the threshold. Oh, we better not touch the threshold. No, that's not the answer. Falling down to the God of Israel in worship and repentance is the answer, but they go the route of man-made religion and assume that there's another way to be right with the gods. In the next passage, in the next section here, starting in verse 6, you see that the Philistines now need to do something about this, so they seek to get rid of the ark. Let's get it out of Ashdod. Let, let's bring it somewhere else. The Philistines send the ark from city to city. Okay? Verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. Now, you're going to see the phrase, hand of the Lord, repeated over and over again. We're meant to see 
that the hand of God is punishing the Philistines, the, 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 the ones who defeated Israel, the powerful ones, the powerful military force. God's hand is heavy against them. They're being judged because of their rebellion against Him and His people. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and He terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory, so the regions around Ashdod. Verse 7, and when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for His hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, these leaders answered, let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath, bring it to another city. That's nice. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, Gath, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. <clears throat> so they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around the ark, to, ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent the ark, therefore, they sent therefore and gathered together the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it might not kill us and our people. So bring it back to where we got it from. Okay, they used it as a trophy, but now clearly the hand of the Lord of Israel, the hand of the God of Israel, the God of Israel is against them, so they want to send it back. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. They're mourning. People are dying. People are getting tumors. They're dying. Some people think that, that there's debate here. Some people think that these tumors are more, um, well, some people think that they're brought about by mice. That's because of what comes later, kind of like the bubonic plague. Mice, vermin somehow spread. These tumors are given, and that's part of God's judgment on this people. Some people think that the tumors are referring to hemorrhoids. Not my truth, sorry. I'm just telling you what other, what other theologians have said. It's, it's either, it's something that kills them. I tend to think that it's tumors brought about kind of in bubonic plague type of fashion, brought by, brought by vermin, and people are dying. And in all the comedy of this, and there is comedy in this, people are suffering and dying at the hands of God, the God of Israel. So the advice of the priests and diviners of the Philistines continues, and they say, bring the ark back, and here's how you're going to do it. Here's how you're going to get it back to Israel. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you'll be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we should return to him? So there was this understanding. It wasn't just, this isn't just a reality in Israel, okay? A, a lot of cultures at that time understood a guilt offering to their gods. Some would sacrifice children to their gods. Sacrifice something to appease that god. Well, the, the leaders of the Philistines thought, if you, if you bring a guilt offering, this god of Israel will be appeased. So what do we bring him? Verse 4, they answered, 
five golden tumors and five golden mice. So make a tumor because we've all been infected by tumors and return it to him saying, we understand this comes from you, we're afraid. So that's the idea as odd as that is to us today. But they're recognizing the fact that the God of Israel is the one that made this happen. They're right. Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and all your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. And then they say this, remember, they know about what God did in Egypt years before. We saw that last week. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Let's not repeat their mistake. After he had dealt severely with them, they, did they not send the people away and they departed? So get, get rid of them. You want these plagues done? Get rid of the Israelites from Egypt. Here, the leaders of the Philistines saying, get rid of the ark. Verse 7, chapter 6, now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put a box at its side, the figures, the figures of gold, they're inside of it, which you're returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way, and watch, stay behind, healthy distance, if it goes up on the way to its own land, so if it follows the road the right way with these two calves or these two milk cows, then send it off, let it go its way and watch. If it goes up to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, if it goes off the road, if it gets sideways, if it goes somewhere else, then we shall know that it's not his hand that struck us. It happened by coincidence. So you get that. So Put, put the ark on a box, on a cart, trailer, so to speak, send the cows, and if the cows get to Beth Shemesh, then we'll know it was God, the God of Israel, that was infecting us, inflicting us. Verse 10, the men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh. What does that tell us? It was the God of Israel infecting them, afflicting them. Went along the highway, lowing as they went. Moo, moo, moo. And they reached the destination that showed them, yes, this was the God of Israel that's punishing you. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. What does this teach us? God is a danger to the obvious rejectors, to his obvious enemies. The Philistines, when you hear Philistines and you know your Bible, you know enemy of the people of God, enemy of God. God is a danger to his enemies. It doesn't matter how strong they seem. It doesn't matter what power they have in the world. God is a danger. And notice that instead of responding to the God of Israel in humble repentance and following Him and dismantling all their other gods, instead of doing that, they try to get rid of God from their presence. This is what people do when they feel in danger from God. Some people will turn and repent and be saved. Some people will just try to avoid Him. It doesn't work. Reminded of the passage in Revelation in the future 
One day, God will inflict His justice on the earth, and people will know. They'll know that it's coming from the hand of God Himself. And they still won't repent. They'll try to hide. Revelation 6, 15, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful. That's quite a setup. And everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us, listen, from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? These are partial theologians. They know that God has wrath for them, but they will not embrace Him as Savior. They won't come to the full knowledge of Him and throw themselves at the mercy of the Lamb and say, rescue us, save us from yourself, Lamb of God. They won't do that. They just keep running. Here, like the Philistines, they keep trying to get rid of God out of their presence. The application is really clear if you're an enemy of God. Stop trying to get rid of Him, stop trying to avoid Him, and go to Him for mercy. In the Old Testament, there is another Gentile group that are heinous toward the people of God, the people from Nineveh, the Assyrians. And what happens when Jonah goes reluctantly, but goes and preaches repentance to that city? They cry out to the God of Israel for mercy, and the text says that they repent and they turn to Him and they're saved. So, God is clearly defeating their gods. He's infecting the people. He's killing the people who have Dagon as their god and who think that they can, that they are stronger than the God of Israel. He's clearly coming after them, and that's really a picture of God coming after those who rebel against Him, which the Bible says He does and one day will do finally. He'll come after the people who've rejected His offering of salvation, who've sinned against Him. So they're running away in guilt or fear. They're avoiding God out of guilt and fear. But here's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel is, yes, you are in trouble with a holy God and you're trying to avoid Him one way or the other. But there's a thing in the presentation of the gospel, it's called the call of God, when, when as you're running away or you're avoiding God and you know that He's a God of wrath and you hate Him, you don't want His rules on you, but, there's, but you know that this God of the Bible you're in trouble with, you know that. But then there's this gospel call, there's this message that says as you're running, but God's also merciful. Stop running, He will save you. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches that He loves the world. He has love for the world. Not just He will save you, but He loves you, rebel. So if you picture someone running from God, maybe God, you know, He's everywhere, but picture God over here. Someone running from God, avoiding God, disregarding God. And there's a call that says, this God you're in trouble with will save you. Hopefully, that's enough to get this person to stop and maybe turn around. What would they find if they turned around? They would find a God who's merciful to save. That, that's, if you're a Christian, that's what you've responded to. You knew you were in trouble with God. Someone told you, but this God is merciful. He sent His Son to die in your place, and His Son rose again, proving that there's life in this God. And so, when you turn to God and you see that you're in trouble with Him, but He's also merciful and will save you, 
What happens when you're saved, when you're rescued by God, is you turn and you say, I need your mercy. It's a turning, it's a turning away from your abandonment. It's your turning to His gospel call, His good news call. That's the response. There is justice in God, and there's also mercy in God. I hope you know that today. There's a second group, though, that's in danger before the living God. God, you see in chapter 6, verse 13 and following, God is a danger to the hypocritical rejectors of His Word. God's a danger to the hypocritical rejectors of His Word. And why do I use that title? Because the ark is going to come back to Israel, the people of God. And this first group that it comes back to, do not pay attention to what God says about how to handle the ark. They disregard His Word. Yes, we're the people of God, but they don't do what He says. That group exists today too. Think of Jesus saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? The group didn't just exist in 1100 B.C., it existed in the first century, and it exists today too. God is a danger to the hypocritical rejectors of His Word. Hypocritical because they say they're of the people of God, they just reject what He says. Verse 13 of chapter 6, now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. Remember, there was mourning because God had left Israel. Ichabod, the glories departed. Now they see it, it's returning. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, this is a problem. You don't just handle the presence of God any way you want. A male cow was meant to be offered to God. They don't offer a male cow. And listen, here's a good principle. If you think God is just too harsh, listen, God gets to determine how He's worshipped. And anytime a man starts to say, God, you determine this, we're not going to do that, we're going to do this, that's trouble. God is the one who determines how He's approached. The idea that He even can be approached is grace from Him. But do not presume on that grace and say, then we'll just approach Him any way we want. Whoa, 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 whoa. He's still a holy God. He's still in charge. Verse 15, And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. So, we're going to see a little bit later. They are executed because they put the ark of God on display. And the, the thinking here is they probably uncovered the ark because the ark was supposed to be covered. We'll see that again in a moment. But they put the ark up to be displayed. It's not meant to be uncovered and displayed. Remember the cart or the ark was normally housed in the Holy of Holies? It's meant to be kept away from the people. It's meant to show that, yes, God is in your presence, but there is a death that's required before you come into the presence of this God. Verse 15, and the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which there were golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. So they're following from a distance. They see it get to Beth Shemesh. 
They know what that means. It was the God of Israel punishing us, and they turn and go home. Now we're left here with the people of Beth Shemesh, the Israelites. Verse 17, these are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. Remember I told you that the Philistines had five strong cities. Their five cities were everything to them. Well, each of those five cities was saying, we get it, we've blown it before the God of Israel. Still wasn't enough to have them worship Him, but they knew that His hand was heavy against them. Verse 18, and the golden mice. According to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. So the tumors represent the strong, powerful cities. The mice represent all the people and outlying areas that were killed. The great stone beside which they set, them down, set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Now we see God strike His people who aren't paying attention to His Word, who disregard His Word. They think that he, they can, again, handle Him any way they please. Now remember what I told you last week. They had been used to this before they lost the ark in the first place. Hophni and Phinehas led them through this through the ritual of sacrificing to God, and they did whatever they wanted. So there was a pattern in Israel where some of the people sacrificed in ways that God never commanded. And that's what God's addressing here. Verse 19, and he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. They had covered it. They looked upon it. Most people think that this means they, they opened it up and looked inside of it. They're just handling the Lord way too casually. This is what actually got them in trouble in the first place when they lost the ark. But the people of God here, the the, the self-proclaimed people of God, are not listening to God. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who's able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That's a good question. Who is able to stand before the Lord this holy God. We know as the reader, he struck the Philistines. He's even struck the people of God who don't handle God rightly. And that's the question. Who's able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? The scriptures that follow will provide an answer to that. Who can stand before God? Those who are found in his Son. Those for whom his, the Son has absorbed the wrath of God. And to whom shall he go up away for us? Where else are we going to send him now? That's what the Philistines had been saying. Let's send him over here. Let's send him over there. Oh, great. He's coming over here. Now the people of God, where, where are we going to put him? With what group of people? Verse 21, so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. This is an area where a number of Gentiles lived. So Israel was saying, let's give it to an area where there are Gentiles. There were still Jews in that area as well. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer. So they, they, they set up a priest, they consecrated a priest to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So, the ark was in Shiloh. Why doesn't it go back to Shiloh? Shiloh has been destroyed by the Philistines. 
We learned that from the prophet of Jeremiah. We learned that in Psalm 78. Can't go back to Shiloh. The people lost the ark. Philistines destroyed Shiloh. So now where are we going to put it? In this place called Kiriath-Jerim, where it stayed for 20 years until David brought it to Jerusalem. But what are we learning here? God is a danger not just to His outward enemies, not to His obvious enemies. He's a danger for people who say that they're of Him, that say they're in a relationship with Him, but don't do what He says. They disregard His Word. Again, Luke 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Those two things don't go hand in hand. The writer of Hebrews actually tells us about this reality in, in the church today, New Covenant context. The writer of Hebrews talks about people who say they're in the body, say they're in the family of God, but will not completely do what he says. They will not completely trust him. And they're even going to publicly walk away from him. And there are these warnings in the book of Hebrews against people like that. Not believers, but claiming to be or being around believing things, Christian things, but go on, as Hebrews 10.26 says, sinning deliberately. Like there's no repentance for that. They just continue sinning and they don't care. So they say they're of the people of God, but they're not paying attention to what God says. Hebrews 10.26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's strong language. It actually continues in verse 29. How much worse, worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? It's worse now because you've seen the Son of God or you've heard of the Son of God being put on a cross for sinners. And so you're belittling His sacrifice. And this person has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's this view sometimes that God's dangerous in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Just grandma. Just, just wouldn't hurt a fly. That's not true. God's dangerous to those who say they're part of His people but do not have any desire to do what He says. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. Remember that God's hand was heavy against the Philistines? And the New Testament author says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. He's still alive. Dagon's dead, but this God is still alive. Now, we're at the end of our passage, and there are people in this building that should be uncomfortable, and there are people who should not be uncomfortable. The people who should be uncomfortable are those who say, I'm, I'm just an enemy of God. I admit that. I don't care. This passage shows that there's a danger to that the eternal wrath of God. The other person that should be comfortable, uncomfortable is the person who says, I know what God says, but I'm not going to obey it. I know what God says, and I don't care. You shouldn't be comfortable. 
if that's how you think. Be warned that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hand of a living God. Stop sinning, turn to Him for mercy, which He gives, and ask Him to take your heart and turn it into a heart that seeks to follow Him because He's Lord. There's a group also that should not be uncomfortable. We sang about it just before I preached. Why this fear and unbelief? Has not the Father put to grief the spotless Son for us? Will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin that was canceled at the cross? I'm not going to be condemned for my sin because He punished Jesus for it. No need to be in fear of a dangerous God. Consider, consider a couple passages. If you're a Christian and you find yourself sinning, what do you do if you're a Christian? You tell God, I've sinned. I don't want to do that. I want to follow you. And what does He do? He forgives. That's every day of the Christian life. Listen, you, you think your grandmother was this wonderful saint? She probably was. You know what she did every day? Sinned. And God forgave her. Look at any giant of church history. Your grandmother or Charles Spurgeon. John Calvin or your uncle. Take any giant of church history. They sinned and trusted in Jesus to reconcile them to God every single day. They trusted in Jesus for His work to be accomplished and applied to them. That's what they trusted Him. They, they weren't uncomfortable every day thinking, am I really a Christian? I sinned again. Am I really a Christian? I sinned again. They, this, it, that's what it means to believe in Jesus. Past, present, future sins taken care of. The church of Jesus Christ isn't one of the two groups in 1 Samuel 5-7. to They're not. They're those that have been saved by God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So to those of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ for mercy, God treats you according to your faith in Christ. He doesn't treat you according to your sins. Please listen to that. God the Father does not treat you according to your sins. He treats you according to your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Your sin's been dealt with. You're not an enemy. You're His child. So we go through a passage like 1 Samuel 5 through 7, 1, and there should be people that are concerned about being in danger of receiving God's wrath. There's also a group of people, namely the church, that should not be afraid of that. They should rejoice that His wrath was intercepted by the Son, absorbed by the Son. Listen, I'm going to leave you with two passages. I mean, if you're not a Bible highlighter, today's the day you start, okay? <laughs> right now, these passages. Listen to 1 John 2, 1-2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you might not sin. You may not sin. You won't sin. I'm writing to you so that you won't sin. Now listen to what John says because he knows what you're like. You're just like him. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He 
is the propitiation for our sins. He absorbed our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Everyone should know about this. If you do sin, you, brother and sister, have an advocate. It's Jesus Christ. And notice what John calls him. He doesn't say Jesus Christ, the Creator. He doesn't say Jesus Christ, the Healer. Jesus Christ, the Righteous. His righteousness applied to you. There's another passage I want you to know about. And because today we're in an Old Testament passage, I want you to see the grace of God in the Old Testament as well. He's gracious throughout the Old Testament. Turn to Jeremiah 31. I want you to see it with your own eyes, if you will. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 18. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. He's weeping over the nation who continues to reject God. God says that he's going to forgive his people. I want you to see this beautiful picture. God says this at the very beginning of Jeremiah 31, 18. His is the first line, okay? God utters it. He says, I have heard Ephraim grieving. Ephraim, name for Israel. I have heard Ephraim grieving. Now, here's what Ephraim says as they grieve, okay? The rest of verse 18. Here's what they're saying in their grief. They've sinned against the holy God. They know that. They say this, you, God, have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. You hear, you hear the confession here? You hear the mourning here? Verse 19, for after I had turned away, I relented. I turned away and then I stopped turning away. <coughs> They're returning. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. That's a sign of mourning. So these are people who know they've sinned against God. Now they feel horrible about it. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Now listen to God's response. Listen to God's response to that. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, this is God speaking, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. That, my friends, is the God of the Old Testament and of the New Testament. That is the God of yesterday and the God of today and the God of tomorrow. When his people mourn over their sin and cry out to him for mercy, he gives it as a father who could never give up his children. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Listen, if you're in Christ, there's your God. Confess anew every day and remember the one that you're confessing is a forgiving God. He's your Father. Again, if you are not one who has responded to God's salvation and forgiveness, and you keep rebelling, you may think 
that this God is horrible. You may think that this God is inappropriately dangerous. But you do want a dangerous God. Because all the things that you are incensed about in the world, all the injustices that you hate in the world need to be punished rightly. People can't get away with the things that they get away with. The rapists, the adulterers, the evil dictators, the murderers, the child molesters, they can't get away with that, and you're incensed about that too. You want a God that deals with sin. You do. And if you bristle against that type of God, you're bristling against a God who rightly will punish sin, but who also is rightly gracious to those who come to Him for mercy. There's a theologian named R.C. Sproul who's now in heaven, but he wrote this. You think, you think God is violent and dangerous? Listen to what Sproul said. The most violent expression of God's wrath and justice is seen in the cross. If ever a person had room to complain for injustice, it was Jesus. He was the only innocent man ever to be punished by God. Jesus, the only innocent man to ever be punished by God. So if we stagger at the wrath of God, let us stagger at the cross. Here is where our astonishment should be focused. The good news is the wrath of God for you could be put on Jesus Christ. His wrath was fully given unto His Son who He gave as an offering. Guess, guess who He gave that for? For you. He gave His own Son as the recipient of His own wrath, and His Son willingly went and took it for you. Please don't complain about the wrath of God. See the mercy of God. Let's pray. Father, You are who You are. God, You are who You are. Jesus Christ, You are who You are. You are dangerous and lovely. You are angry and patient. You are merciful. You're a Savior. We praise You both for Your right justice, and we praise You for Your gracious mercy. Father, whatever the hearts in this room need this morning from this passage, I pray that You would preach it to their hearts, that they would know You rightly, that they would see themselves as Your sons and daughters and recipients of Your grace, and that they would see that there's nothing to fear in terms of judgment. Father, draw from our hearts greater praise to Jesus Christ. Jesus, You suffered for us. You are amazing. We praise You and pray all this in Your name. Amen. Now we'll invite the ushers to come.